right, welcome to another episode of Dose of Dividends. I'm your host, Dr. Dividend, and today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Brad Thomas, CEO of Widemoat Research and the number one writer on Seeking Alpha. Brad, how are you doing today? Oh, it's great to be on Dr. Dividend, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to talking with you today. Thank you for taking the time. So I want to start out by saying Brad is the REIT man. This guy is all about real estate investing trusts. And I just have a couple of questions for him today. Um, hope to get your insight. I'm sure some people here hold REITs. I hold REITs too. And I believe that they're a great investment for diversification in any portfolio. I want to start by asking you, how did you get started with REIT investing? Sure. I think my first attempt at, at the REIT world was probably about 20 years ago. So when I got out of college, I decided I want to get into commercial real estate. My grandfather was in real estate and had motels in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And my mother has been in real estate pretty much her whole working life. And so I'd always been around real estate. So I started in leasing and, and development. It was kind of the natural evolution. And then I did that for about 20 years, over 20 years. And so I learned how to create value from the, literally from the ground up. And so I, you know, acquired, uh, hired architectures, architects and contractors and engineers and lease space out to tenants. And hopefully when the product's finished, it's leased and then sold to an investor and you make money. And of course, not all projects made money, but fortunately I had more winners than losers. But towards, uh, as we uh, kind of moved closer into the great recession, you know, I ended up, I was selling a number of my properties to REITs. So that's when I got involved in the REIT space. Uh, I didn't know what a REIT was. And uh, until I had a companies like Realty Income, Inland and Kimco, uh, for example, were companies that I dealt with on the, when I was a private developer. When the Great Recession hit, it left me a uh, few choices there. I couldn't go back and develop. Uh, the, many of the banks had failed or were in the process of failing. And so I uh, ended up writing on Seeking Alpha and decided I would spend you know, a short period of time educating investors on how the right way to invest in REITs or real estate investment trusts. And now, 12 years later, uh, here I am, and uh, we built a publishing business. And I'm as eager as ever to help you know, educate investors on the benefits of investing in this uh, asset class. That's an awesome story. So congratulations for making the jump from the nine to five to owning your own publishing and taking the step to be the creator and help guys like us learn about real estate investing. Thank you for sharing. So I know you mentioned that you had to put in place teams of engineers, contractors, maintenance. I'm sure that wasn't easy. Can you speak to what goes into that process of developing a place from the ground up? Yeah, sure. So my first customer was actually a company called Advance Auto Parts. Probably everybody's familiar with Advance. They're in 50 states and almost every major road on any, any large town, even small town. So everybody's familiar with Advance Auto. But when I started, there weren't many people that were familiar with Advance Auto. The company had less than 100 locations. They're based in Roanoke, Virginia, at least they were at the time. And they were privately held. In fact, to get a credit rating on the company, I had to basically create a shadow rating. There was no way to really analyze the company because they weren't publicly traded. And so the first building I built was a little town called Union, South Carolina. And it was a 10-year lease. And I took the plans and specifications that Advance Auto provided. I bid them out to three different general contractors and uh, had a civil engineer. And uh, very first building, I'll, I'll never forget it. 
you know, I, I think I built it on time. Hopefully, I think I did because they allowed me to build some more stores. Ultimately, I ended up building over 50 stores for Advance Auto and really helped them, you know, grow across the Southeast. So I started in South Carolina, then I moved into Georgia and Alabama. And uh, so that was really where I started, but it was a lot easier then because at the time, you know, there was another company that was uh, in a high growth mode uh, called Walmart uh, down in Bentonville, Arkansas. And so back then I would go to these towns and just look for Walmart. And typically you'd find us, this, these are the smaller box Walmarts that didn't have the grocery stores like you have today, the super Walmarts, but I'd find that Walmart and I'd find these out parcels and they were really cheap then, at least based on today's terms. And on average, I'd buy an out parcel for say $150,000 or $200,000. I'd go hire the contractor, build a building, lease it. And I'll tell you, as fast as I built the buildings, literally before the certificate of occupancy was issued, I had them sold to an investor. Amazing. And that really showed to me the, the liquidity of net lease real estate, the long-term lease stuff. It was uh, There's a huge market for that. Uh, but that's really how I got started is, is with that first customer, Advanced Auto Parts. So I'm sure you had your teams in place as far as contractors, architects, inspecting and all that. How do you scale that up to start crossing and expanding across state borders? Sure. Well, you know, I, I would pick a few really good contractors and there's no reason to recreate the wheel. So once I found, you know, one or two really good contractors, we would travel together. Uh, I'd, I'd actually one contractor. I remember we'd go to these towns and we'd stay at the same hotels or motels or whatever. And you know, I'd spend a day or two and he would go get the building permit. Then I'd go on to the next job. In fact, I'll tell you a funny story. I used to date a, a lady who uh, was a pilot and she had her pilot's license and we would fly in these single engine planes to all these towns. I remember going all over Georgia and towns that I never knew existed. But these were little small markets, secondary or even tertiary markets. Some of those towns even had just, you know, grass runways. We would fly into these little small airports. Again, find that Walmart, find those out parcels either in front of Walmart or across from Walmart, uh, tie up the property, and then uh, get the lease signed from advance and, and close these deals and, and get them under construction. And uh, we really created kind of like a Krispy Kreme does donuts. We just put the we put together a cookie cutter model and we would just start stamping these out. And that that made it really efficient because typically I'd have the same team of engineers, architects and contractors who would follow me around. Wow, you are brave for taking a single engine plane on grass runways. <laughs> Talk about getting there in style, right? Well, if you asked to do that with me today, I probably wouldn't do that today. But when you're younger, you take bigger risks. But uh, I don't think today I would uh, take those same risks. But uh, <laughs> anyway, it was a lot of fun, a lot of memories. That's awesome. So would you say your biggest takeaway from your first job in commercial leasing would be the strength of seeing net lease investing like firsthand? Or do you think there's something else that you would call your biggest takeaway? Yes, definitely. I mean, it's, you know, net lease investing is definitely boring. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not as exciting as, as building these big, you know, office buildings and towers and even, you know, shop, even shopping centers, but it is very predictable income. And again, when I saw the demand, especially in the 1031 exchange market, which is the like kind exchange, we have the tool we have in real estate where an investor can sell a piece of property and not pay capital gains by deferring that capital gains, you roll it into another property. So there was a very strong market there as there is today. And, and we found they were very liquid, even though they were very boring and you know collecting these leases and long-term rent checks were somewhat boring. 
uh, there's a lot of uh, opportunity there. And I still think there is today in the REIT space, by the way, and, but that is definitely uh, an asset class or, or property sector I really like. The other thing I did when I found opportunities, uh, always looking to create more value, uh, I remember going to a town in Alabama. There's a, a town called Coleman, Alabama, which sits about an hour north of Birmingham, Alabama. And I'm driving through the town. I didn't fly in. I drove in this time. And I'm driving through the town and I'm trying to find the piece of property. And it was hard. I mean, I couldn't find that one acre, that Walmart out parcels were already built out. And I'm driving up and down the road. And I found this one piece of property that was about one and a half acres. And it was a perfect spot, but it was too expensive. And then I said, you know, what else could I do? What, else, how, what other tenant could I put in there? And so I ended up, I, I built some stores for Payless Shoes. They were about 2,000, 3,000 square feet, but I needed something else. So I was also starting to build stores for Blockbuster Video. And I just, so I went to my engineer and I said, hey, can you put together a freestanding advanced auto and a Blockbuster and a Payless in the same building and put that on a piece of paper, see if it works. So he sent it back and of course it worked. I was like, okay, that was an aha moment. Aha, uh, uh, what do you call it? An aha moment. Aha. Yeah, there you go. Can't, can't get yeah. that word out. Aha <laughs> moment. And I said, wow, this is a, incredible because the returns were really a whole lot better when you're able to aggregate these many tenants on the property. So I started to stamp out, I called them combo centers. So I started building out Blockbuster and Payless because the returns were a lot better than building for advanced auto. And that gave me another idea. And I thought, well, wait a minute. I'm actually, if I'm going to build a shopping center, let's go big. So then I started building real shopping centers and I got the grocery anchors and the shop space and the drugstore on the out parcel. And then I went to the big time. I went to Walmart and built, I bought a hundred acre site and built a Walmart, a shopping center, a bunch of out parcels and, and other, other things. So anyway, it, I, I learned that you can really, there's economies of scale really come into play where you can take a piece of property and try to jam as much as you can onto the property. Now, the environmentalists don't like that. Of course, I like trees too, but you want to try to jam as much onto the property and much revenue as you can. And that obviously increases the return on the investment. Yeah. And there's a beauty to the predictability that these regular buildings just give us. Like we use these services and stores every day and you are creating value for anybody who comes to the shopping center and how easy is it to come to a big shopping center where you have 20 to 30 stores that you're interested in and you're not going all across town for it. So in a way you are creating value for everybody. And I think that's super interesting. So yeah, Cyber Monday has recently just passed and it's been touted the killer of brick and mortar stores with analysts expecting upwards of $11.2 billion spent on this Cyber Monday in 2022. And you wrote a recent article refuting that and talk about three REIT sectors that are responsible for behind the scenes filling in the Cyber Monday orders. Can you touch on those three and why you think that REIT investing still works in a growing e-commerce environment? Sure. Well, of course, you know, one thing we have to do when we cover retail real estate is not only, you know, understand the actual brick and mortar, but the, the operators that, that pay the rent checks. At the end of the day, if the building's not leased and paying rent, then the investment doesn't turn out. Uh, and so we do spend a lot of time, our team, looking at the, the credit worthiness of a lot of these retailers and operators and really have to understand at a granular level what those, how those companies are performing. And, and one of the things that I have really learned over the many years of being an analyst is that to be a successful retailer, you have to 
operate on the entire omni-channel platform. So in other words, the omni-channel exists from brick and mortar to outlets to e-commerce. So you have to be successful at exploiting all of those parts of the omni-channel. So if you look at some of these really successful retailers who have thrived, have been able to adapt on both the brick and mortar outlet as well as e-commerce channels uh, to be successful. And that's really what, you know, this is not the death of retail. I would argue, if anything, it's not as much the death of retail as it is probably the death of the department store. So if you start to look at the overall, you know, we cover malls, we cover outlets, we cover shopping centers. And of course, there are different types of shopping centers. You have power centers, which is the Home Depot you know, type product. You have community centers and lifestyle centers. And then you have grocery anchored centers. And of course, I mentioned outlets as well, which is really just an offshoot of the malls. And so when you look at the whole paradigm of brick and mortar, retail brick and mortar, the ones that the, the sector that's really been under most the most stress is the mall sector. And the reason is not as much the retailers that the operate the small operators that are in those malls, although there are quite a few that are have been challenged, but the bigger issue behind the mall is the department store. So then you've got to ask yourself, okay, why do we have so many department stores? Why did Sears fail? Why did JC Penney's fail? Now JC Penney's trying to revive itself, but a number of department stores have failed. And the reason of that, the reason for that is number one, is because overbuilding. We've had a, a massive oversupply of retail in the US, especially malls. Now, I would also throw uh, theaters in there as well. I took my kids to uh, to see the uh, Black Panther this this weekend. How was uh, it? Black Friday. It was it was um it was good. Uh, now again, I'm not a big movie person, and three hours sitting in that chair. Um, oh, wow. I'm trying to avoid popcorn, and it was really hard because my kids were eating all this popcorn <laughs> and candy, and I'm like, you know, I, I'm really trying hard, but Anyway, it was a good movie. I'm just three hours is a long time. So if you, I, mean, I would, I would go to Black Panther and just be prepared for about three hours. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was good. But you know, there weren't many people there. And by the way, this theater is owned by REIT called Realty Income, uh, which I do own shares. That's actually my hard, largest position. I love to. I tell my kids it's what I call boots on the ground. I like going to real. We took. I took them to the Empire State Building a couple of weeks ago for my oldest daughter's wedding, and uh, we went all the way up to the 101st uh, floor. And I said, look, this I'm a shareholder in this in this I own Empire State Building. They kept looking at me. I was like, I own this building. And like, what you're kidding. I said, no, I, I own the building. I'm a shareholder. I own part of this building. This is I'm the landlord, you know. That's and amazing. same thing when I take them to the movie, I'm like, you know, I'm this is mine. I mean, you know, you want some you want some free popcorn? <laughs> but anyway, I wish I could give out free popcorn, even as a large shareholder, but that's impossible. But I do the same rate, thing. Um, I pass my buildings and I'm like, oh, I'm an owner of that building, that building. Yeah this company, that company. And it's just like, people look at you like you're crazy, but that's what stock investing is. We Sometimes people forget that there's a name behind those tickers and a business that lives under those couple of letters. And there are owners like you and me just behind the scenes that we appreciate it from a different angle that some people that aren't as big into investing just don't see. And it's uh, it's funny that you share that too. No, it's important. And Warren Buffett said, you know, you've got to understand the business. And and one great way to understand the real estate business is to actually go touch it, walk through it and uh, see how those operators perform. But back to the malls, you know, I just felt like, you know, the our, our local mall is under massive distress right now. And it's simply because there was overbuilding and the department stores aren't working. The other thing you got to think about when you look at the history of department stores is, 
Today, these department stores are, are really more than a collection of brands. So when I go into my local, say, you know, Dillard's, uh, which is an Arkansas-backed mall department store, you know, you're going to see depart. You're going to see Ralph Lauren. You're going to see Chanel. You're going to see all these brands, and that's how departments are really just you know uh, stores that contain that almost call it sublease space uh, mm -hmm. to these smaller brands. And so you're starting to see, and you've, of course we've been seeing this. You know, Ralph Lauren has outlets. Ralph Lauren has a really cool website where you can you can buy stuff on their website. Yeah. They're in shopping centers. So the department stores between overbuilding. And the fact that a lot of these brands are now going out and doing their own standalone locations, um, there's not as much demand for the department store. So I think if there's going to be a death of anything retail, I would say the department store is under the most stress. Now, I'm sure you're asking yourself, why do I own shares in Simon Property Group, which is the largest mall REIT in the world, ticker SBG? In fact, I talked to the company today. The reason is I like to own consolidators that dominate the market and not just every market, but Simon's especially has a fortress balance sheet. They have an A-rated balance sheet. They have massive liquidity. They have the capital to redevelop these closed down department stores. And they've been able to repurpose these properties and return precious capital to investors in the form of dividends. And quite frankly, I mean, you know, again, I know malls, I know that goes totally against what I just said, the death of department stores, but it's not the death of the mall because Simon has a quality malls. They're in densely populated markets. So these locations can be backfilled much quicker, much easier than say my local mall, which is just a mile from where I'm sitting. So Simon is definitely a company that I do own, cheers, full disclosure, but that's the only mall REIT I like and that I'll own. Now, if we want to move over next to outlets, outlets is this little hybrid. A lot of people don't understand outlets. And I think that's a big, there's a big misconception with outlets. Now, if we go back to the 1970s or even 1980s, when Tanger Outlets was formed, these locations were out in rural markets. You had to drive 30 minutes or an hour to go out to these locations. And they were basically factory outlet stores. They took the factory goods and put them in these, in these centers. And that's how the whole business model started. Now, you fast forward this, by the way, Warren Buffett invested in Tanger about 20 years ago. Little known fact. He doesn't own Tanger today, to the best of my knowledge, nor does Berkshire Hathaway. But fast forward to 20 years today, outlets are so different. If you go to an outlet, say, in Savannah, Georgia, which I have, uh, you go to an outlet, say, in uh, Daytona Beach, which I have, all Tanger, or you go to Fort Worth, Texas, which I have, or Myrtle Beach, or Charleston, or Commerce, Georgia. These locations are not the same locations that you would think about 20 years ago. These so, are much Brad, better. Just to clarify, Tanger is a REIT containing outlet space, just to clarify, because I haven't heard the name before. Right. They're not little REIT. They're also headquartered close to me in North Carolina. They're up in, um, uh, not in Raleigh, but I'll think of it in a second. But they're up in North Carolina mm -hmm. and roughly 40 locations. Uh, they do have a couple in Canada as well. They're not coast to coast, very fragmented, uh, very, fr very fractured. Um, they're actually building one right now in Nashville, Tennessee, which is the first new construction they've seen in quite some time, certainly since the uh, pandemic. And so Tanger is definitely a, a great company. We like the company's great management team, very disciplined, strong balance sheet. But again, we think there is a market. Part of that, going back to that omni-channel again, 
you know, there are a lot of retailers that utilize the outlet structure for distribution. And that is a terrific distribution. You, you name it, practically any retailer out there, they're in an outlet location. And Tanger has some of the best outlets. Now, Simon does as well, by the way. They have a, a big part of their business is also outlets as well. So that's something that I think uh, a lot of people either ignore or don't quite understand the value proposition for investing in outlets. But I certainly do. And I, that's been a, a good part of our investment strategy. Yeah. And you hear the headlines that e-commerce is going to take out brick and mortar. And I like that you brought up the Home Depot before, too, because I'm a Home Depot shareholder here. And I think that they've done a phenomenal job of catering to the e-commerce with their distribution and having the in-store experience that I don't think can be replicated by an Amazon. How many people go into the Home Depot and test out? They want to feel the tiles that they're going to put down. They want to look at the paint that they're thinking of painting. And they need that in-store experience and they've done a good job bolstering that with their e-commerce and i think walmart's done a great job of that too i believe the cyber monday numbers came in and walmart was the best selling retailer of all cyber monday participants not amazon not kohl's like walmart and do you think of them as go to your store get low prices maybe get your groceries there too but they're dominating e-commerce and that e-commerce i think is bolstering their in-store experience so i think they've done a great job with that as well Anything else you want to add on about malls and outlets? Yeah, I just want to add one more thing, kind of your Home Depot comment. I, I, I'm a shareholder in Home Depot and Lowe's and a great company, but I also like getting their rent checks. Now, I never leased a Home Depot or Lowe's, but I am a shareholder in Realty Income and they own quite a few uh, facilities that are leased to Home Depot and Lowe's. So it definitely helps me sleep well at night uh, knowing that that rental income is coming from these very powerful chains that obviously is powering also the dividend for companies like Realty Income. Yeah, Home Depot and Realty Income are two of my swan stocks. Sleep well at night. <laughs> so do you have a REIT sector that you believe will outperform most other REITs? You know, so there's some really interesting opportunities. Now, we saw this kind of a lot of sectors became somewhat euphoric during COVID. You know, they they were oversold and apartment sector went through the roof and for a good reason. I mean, you obviously need a place to live in a pandemic and especially the Sunbelt oriented REITs, companies like Mid-America Apartment Community. I just interviewed the CEO yesterday. I do own shares in the company. I like apartments. Apartments now have gotten back down to some realistic pricing. Uh, so a lot of that euphoric sentiment we had back in 21 and early 22 has now cooled off. So now I see a lot of attraction with multifamily. I like that sector because of the pricing power. Kind of going back to the net lease property example, those are long-term 15-year leases. Th those rents do grow. Companies like Advance Auto, Parts, and even Lowe's, they do have rental increases, but certainly not like you see in multifamily. Pricing power is much, much better in that sector. So I, I'm starting to really like apartments, just frankly, because the shares have sold off. Another sector I like it's really kind of gotten out of attention. And again, we're all value investors at heart, as you know, Dr. Dividend. So we like for companies that are on sale. Yeah. And one sector that's been sold off dramatically is self-storage. And again, that has great pricing power. You know, they adjust their rents every month. And, uh, you know, these leases are really fa fairly short term and they are able to increase those rents. I just interviewed, in fact, just an hour ago, the CEO of Extra Space. Uh, I'm a shareholder in that company. And we are accumulating more shares in self-storage because we see the opportunity set. A lot of these self-storage companies are really what I consider prop tech plays. So they certainly own property, but the technology 
has really helped them scale their businesses and increase revenues. If you think about it like this, 10 years ago, if you would have rented a self-storage facility, you probably would have gone to your yellow pages. I don't know if you have those anymore. We don't have those in our house, but we used to. But yeah. remember the yellow pages? Yeah. You would go to AAA, open up the thing. First things, AAA storage. I'm going to rent there. And that's where you rent it. Well, now, thanks in large part to technology and Google search engines and, and all, of, all of the prop tech, these larger self-storage reads, primarily extra space, cube smart, public storage, which has the big orange doors, everybody knows that, and life, life storage, national storage is another one. So you have really five kind of dominant names. And of course, U-Haul, which we just picked up coverage on, they're not a REIT or a C corporation, but certainly they have a lot of real estate. Uh, everybody knows U-Haul. So those are uh, some names that we really like and think that that sector really is set up perfectly because it's been sold off. So we see some value there, but we also see great potential for growth ahead. And it's still very, very fragmented. So I think the opportunity to still grow, you know, is really uh, strong. So multifamily and, and uh, self-storage are probably two of the sectors that I think are best prepared for the inflation that we're all sitting in right now. Yeah. And it's interesting where these REITs have inflation already embedded in the agreement and they are passing those inflationary costs off to their tenants. And I think that you're right with apartments and self-storage. I see self-storage around me that people going in and out of all the time. So people are filling them. There's a good opportunity there. You mentioned U-Haul. Did I hear that right? U-Haul, like the trucking and moving company? Yeah, they actually just changed their name. It was Americo, and I, I didn't ask them to, but I'm glad they did change their <laughs> name. So their name, their actual official name is U-Haul, and their ticker symbol is real easy to remember. It's U-H-A-L. And you're right. They're known for their storage, you know, their trailers, and of course, the trucks that you see everywhere. And they've expanded massively now in the storage side of the business. And that's really a big part of their capital deployment right now is to uh, really increase and own more of these self-storage facilities. So it's really a great business because they can... They have the truck business and the storage business kind of working together. So it's very collaborative uh, type of uh, business model. Yeah. And if you're going for storage, maybe short-term storage, and you need to move that to somewhere else, you're going to end up renting one of their trucks and bring it to probably another U-Haul storage. So it's just a nice ecosystem that works together. Do they still rent from WP Carry? I believe that was one of their biggest tenants. Are they focused on buying more of their storage area as opposed to renting from another REIT? Or do you have any insight yeah, on so that? Yeah, I, I do. WP Carry sold off their self, I think most, if not all, of their self-storage business. They were one of the top operators in the top 10, I think, or top 20 for, for WP Carry. But I think that has been sold off. So, and I think those were under a net lease type of arrangement. But but definitely, I think U-Haul is definitely leaning. They want to own the property. I actually spoke with their management team about two weeks ago. I want to fly out to Arizona where they're based to meet with them. They have a substantial amount of insider ownership as well. Uh, that's a great little gym. Now, of course, shares are up today. I just checked as uh, one of our top performers today. So uh, it's it's not going to be the little secret that it was uh, back before. But uh, certainly, if you had been a subscriber at uh, one of our services, you might have known about it. Awesome. What is your opinion on reinvesting versus owning a property outright and renting it yourself? Do you have a take on that? I do. In fact, I it's funny. I just had a closing today. I bought a piece of property today. Congratulations. Yeah, it's uh, actually a commercial piece of property. It's, it goes against my rule book. It's land. So I don't, you know, I, I like income producing. This is this is land, but it's a development play. So I have to put my hard hat back on. 
And but I, I've I've done my due diligence. I think I'm in a good good position with this piece of property and uh, can create really create some some value. But you know, I used to own a lot of residential, and I say a lot in my world, and uh, not like Grant Cardone. I mean, Grant's got uh, in fact. Grant sent me a little shout out on LinkedIn this week, so I, hopefully I'm going to try to connect with him in Miami here when I'm back down in Florida. But but you know, I had a lot of duplexes, and I don't know if I if I created this term or not. I use it a lot. But I call it the three T's. And you know, when you own these uh, residential property or really private real estate, you really you get it. You have to uh, manage these three T's: the toilets, the trash, and the taxes. And so the the big difference between there's a couple of differences between private and public or, or investing in REITs. But one of the big differences is you know you don't have to deal with any of those three T's when you own REITs. Uh, it, when I own duplexes, I would get calls every day. The toilets broke, the roofs leaking, the heating and air is not working, and then of course you got to go collect that rent. And if they're not paying rent, you've got to go to the next step and find another tenant. And it's very management intensive. Now you can hire a management company, which I did, and most people do, but it's still fairly management intensive. And you know, I've come to the conclusion, especially after interviewing you know, many, many CEOs on a regular basis. These management teams do a lot better job than I did and that I could. And I would rather, when you invest in a share of a REIT, and I know you mentioned realty income, but mm-hmm. you're also investing in that management team. You're funding part of that salary for that CEO and that CFO and that CIO. And you know they're running that business for you. So you can actually sleep well at night. You don't have to worry about any of those issues. That's part of their job and their compensation is reflected in that capital stack. So so I think management's a big thing. The other thing that I like about REITs is they're just the transparency. They're publicly traded. I mean, you can get every detail you want. It's filed on a quarterly basis. And um, anything, it'll be filed, whether it's new debt, dividends, you name it. So I think dividends is, is another part of it and transparency. And I think finally, and this is probably a big, big value proposition, is liquidity. Because you know, if you and I own a rental house together and we want to sell it, well, we've got to hire a broker to sell it and then find a buyer. She's going to, he or she will find a buyer. That buyer is going to have to find a bank. Assuming they're in cash, they may not. And then you're going to have to get the survey, make sure the title. So, I mean, it's not full liquidity. It take, it'll take you a couple months to get your money if you're lucky, and especially in this environment we're in right now. Oh, and so, sure. you know, liquidity is really important. You know, there's a demands. I have five kids. There's always a demand in my house. Right now, it's a, it's a new car for the senior in high school. You know, fortunately, braces are already done in my house, including mm-hmm. me, by the way. I had braces about three years ago. Looking but, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Um, but uh, yeah, I decided that was one of my one of my things, midlife crisis. But but uh, absolutely, I mean, I think liquidity is is a big part of investing in REITs is being able to access capital when you need it. And I am looking at buying some more private real estate. I'm looking at a portfolio right now of rental houses. But I'm going to have somebody else manage those. But I'm going to invest in those houses just like I do in these stocks I'm buying. I'm looking for that margin of safety. There's going to be a deal. I'm not going to overpay. And that's the key. That's the key to my whole investment strategy and our company's invest, investment strategy is protect your principal at all costs. Simply put, don't overpay. And so whether it's private or whether it's public, you know, it's all about that margin of safety and buying a company or property when it's on sale. Yeah. Just being patient, picking your spots, knowing you did the due diligence, knowing this is a price you're willing to pay for, and just being patient for that. You can almost add one more T to those 
three T's and tenants. You're going to have to deal with tenants, toilets, yeah. trash, and taxes. Like, I really like that, that T system. And there's nothing more passive and investing in real estate than just sitting on your phone and clicking buy when it's time to buy, not dealing with those calls at night or having to make sure you and your manager are on the same page or your contractor and all those moving parts matter. And you're investing and somebody else at those REITs are taking care of it. And I appreciate that about REITs too, about how passive they are to become a real estate investor. And it, it, yeah, you're right. Yeah. The, the, the barrier right. to entry is very low too. If you, oh, want yeah, to, exactly. if you want to buy real estate, you have to have a big chunk of change put away, or you're going to be using a lot of leverage with a REIT. You can buy REITs for under a hundred dollars a share. And that, that's, and as long as you have an internet connection and a few bucks, like you can become a real estate investor. And I think that's really special. You said it right. I couldn't have said it any better. And, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's definitely, and the thing is, I mean, obviously you have the volatility with, with share. obviously the trade-off with, with liquidity is volatility, right? And mm-hmm. so you're going to have that volatility. But as long as you're investing in a company that's growing its dividend, whether it's a REIT or not, the key is, and your name says it up, Dr. Dividend, as uh-huh. long as that dividend is growing, I don't care about the share price. Um, right. don't, I don't care about the, I'm not a market timer. As long as that dividend is going to grow, I'm on board with the company. And I don't, I don't care about the share price. I don't look at these stocks on a, on a day-to-day-to-day basis. So really, uh-huh. dividend growth is the key. Yeah, I agree. That company's growing the dividend. It's strong. It's doing something right from a financial standpoint, and it's rewarding its shareholders. And if share prices are down, I, I luck out because my dividend, when it's reinvested, buys even more. So I'm not looking to cash out anytime soon. The dividend snowball is going to keep rolling, and I'm just happy to hold on for the ride as long as they keep paying and growing those dividends. Last question. Do you have any environment where you see reinvesting would not do well in? Sure. Well, I mentioned, you know, when I first started, I was I was coming out of the Great Recession and, you know, I lived through that. Now, if I would have had the, the powder, the cash to make REIT investments in the darkest days, say 2009, early part of 2009, I would probably have a, a different career right now. And, you know, I know recessions in real estate, they're scary. I went through one, so I certainly can appreciate that you know, losing jobs, losing houses, banks failing, all of those things I remember so vividly that were you know just around what 12 or 13 years ago. But I can tell you this: we're not going into a recession. I'm finishing an article tonight called Lessons Learned from the Great Recession. And I can tell you, there is no doubt in my mind, we will not be entering a great recession. Although, you know, we're not, we don't have this housing crisis, this subprime housing meltdown. The banks have gotten smarter. The ones that stayed in business, many of those aren't in business anymore. Yeah, the sad reality is that the bad players and the ones that weren't on top of their game are the ones that got smoked. And hopefully whoever's left is the ones that deserve to be there. And hopefully they've learned from their mistakes. Do you see supply as an issue for housing specifically? So we do cover you know, some of the housing REITs. There's actually mortgage REITs uh, that invest in housing and we cover the builders. So we, we try to keep our finger on the pulse there. You know, I think everything's in pretty well good check. I actually, my office building here is owned by a builder just who sits right below me in this building. And every morning I walk, walk in and say, how's it going? And he's got several under construction. They're already pre-sold. You know, there's a lot more cash buyers now, obviously, given the, the rates. 
Um, but there's one interesting thing that, that occurs, and I'm putting this in my article that I'm writing, is when a recession hits, rates come down. So I think we all agree we're entering a recession. Uh, and I think we can all agree that rates are going to come back down. And so I think it's going to be a terrific opportunity. I think right now, it's not as crazy of an opportunity that I saw in 2008, 2009 when I didn't have the cash, but it's close. But the best part of it is these REITs, for the most part, are in much better shape financially to weather this garden style recession, which is what it's going to be, than they were to manage the Great Recession. The, the Great Recession. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of these REITs were over levered before 2008. So now the last 12 years, when they interview most of these CEOs and CFOs, they'll, they tell me the same thing. Their, their balance sheets are much stronger today than they were 12 years ago. So it is a great time to be investing in this space. And that's why I've doubled down and tripled down on my message in the REIT space, because I think there's going to be a tremendous opportunity, especially for these really strong REITs. I mentioned Simon Properties is a good example, and Realty Income is another great example. Again, I own both because they have fortress balance sheets. They have plenty of liquidity. They're going to take advantage of the opportunities set. It's going to be survival of the fittest. And if you're going to invest in these companies, you want the fittest, strongest companies imaginable. Absolutely. And so that's what we're really, that's what we're focused on. Awesome, Brad. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and sitting down. Is there anything you'd like to talk about on the way out? How can people find you? Sure. So I am the CEO of Wide Moat Research. That's W-I-D-E, Moat, M-O-A-T, just like my license plate says Moat, M-O-A-T, <laughs> Wide Moat Research. You can go there and we've got a newsletter, which is a really hot selling uh, newsletter. We, we have all dividend focused and that's probably the best place to find me, of course, on Twitter where you and I met. You can find me at, at our Brad Thomas. And of course, I'm on LinkedIn as well. But uh, uh, I usually try to pop into Twitter a couple of times a day and uh, you can certainly visit me on the website. I'm also wrote a book called The Intelligent REIT Investor Guide. You can find that on Amazon. And I'm in the process of writing my fourth book, which is called REIT for Dummies. And Dr. Dividend, it won't be for you because you're not a dummy, but for, for many people, it might be a great book. Oh, I'm sure I'll still check it out. Brad, thank you so much for sitting down. I hope you have a fantastic day. Thank you guys all for listening and tune in for the next one. Peace.